All right. Hey, everybody. Alex Shaw here with your Risk Matters podcast. I'm with Isaac uh, Mackey and Kramer Lewis. Guys, thanks for taking a little bit of time to, to catch up this morning. I'm excited to hear about your adventure. Um, so welcome to the podcast. Yeah, nice to meet you. And um, thanks for inviting us on. I've uh, listened to some other podcasts. and I, I saw you had Jordan on. That's incredible. Yeah, we're oop, and I just adjusted that too much. Yeah, so uh, so we're rocking and rolling, and we've been able to talk to a lot of really fun people so far, and and you guys are on that list. So, um, why don't if you don't mind, do a little introduction of yourselves, where you're from, just you know what you've been up to the past few years, and then what led you to the adventure that that we're going to talk about today. Okay, um, so my name's Isaac Mackey. I'm a graduate student right now in Santa Barbara, California, studying computer science in a PhD program. I've been in California for about five years uh, studying, but before that I was in Richmond, Virginia. And um, yeah, from the East Coast now on the West Coast is a little adventure, but you know, it's fun to learn to live in a new place and to go swimming in the ocean, surfing in the ocean. So where, so where do you usually surf? Where are the breaks that you usually hit up? I mentioned I was going to be in California for meetings next week and um, was hoping to slide into a little time at Venice beach if, if time permits. So what, which I, I haven't heard too many great surfing things about Venice beach. I heard you can do it, but there are better spots naturally on, on the West coast. Yeah, there's a, I just go to the places I'm at a university right now. So I go to where all the students go, which would be Sands beach or coal oil point. Um, pretty nice waves there, or sometimes just, you know, walk right ever off the beach, wherever you happen to be, because the waves aren't that bad on any given section of the coast. Yeah. I've noted on Surfline, what's funny is I, I'll, I've been down to surf in Florida and when, you know, and, and I grew up and had spent most of my time surfing in Virginia beach and down in the outer banks. And, um, and, and when I look at the Surfline rating for like a poor or, you know, poor to fair day in Florida, it's a, just fine. It's just fine compared to, you know, how they rate poor in, in the outer banks. So, um, Kramer, how about you? What's, what's a little bit of your background and your story? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. First off, thanks for having us, Alex. I uh, appreciate it and, uh, excited to be here, but yeah, I'm, um, from the Pacific Northwest here in, uh, the Seattle area. I'm actually from Tacoma and I, uh, you know, I went to university at UW and uh, started working thereafter at Amazon. And yeah, I'm a software development engineer there. And mm-hmm. now, you know, that's sort of how I got uh, connected to connected to doing this. But that's pretty much what I was doing leading up to this ocean rowing um, adventure. And yeah, someone someone reached out to me. Happens to be our captain now, Jonathan. Um, through a work email and connected me to this basically asked if I wanted to row across an ocean. So here I am, um, you know, prior to this, I just been doing some sailing around the Puget Sound and, uh, you know, various outdoor activities around the area. But uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's sort of uh, yeah, what I've been up to lately. Okay, so tell me about the uh, the the adventure, the rowing across the ocean. Give me some nitty gritty on that. I'm I'm really interested. I want to get into the logistics, all the considerations that come with that, because that's a that's a lot to to bite off. Yeah, sure. So the um, the sport itself is ocean rowing, which is where you get a, a boat 
It's usually bigger than your typical rowing boat, so you can sleep in it. And then you go for a few days or however long it's going to take you either to circumnavigate a big island or something or to go from point to point, possibly cross the ocean. People have already done this many times. People cross the Atlantic every year. People row from California to Hawaii uh, a little bit less often, but still somewhat regularly. People have done up to, I think the, the record right now is 10 months straight in a rowboat. I think that was from California to somewhere in Australia. So people have, are maybe in the past 15, 20 years as the technology on these, these boats gets better. So they'll just do long distance rowing. Um, you sleep on the boat, usually take all your food. You have a water maker, um, some solar panels and pretty self-sufficient. Most of the expeditions that happen in these big rowing boats are not supported. They're not having somebody follow them and provide supplies. Everything is packed on board and you just uh, deal with what you have, try to make repairs with what you have. Hmm. So how many folks are going to be crew? Is it just one or is it multiple? And then how much does the boat, I mean, what's the load, the payload of a boat at the start versus at the end? And how much impact does that have on the you know, I think about this, you fill your car up and, and granted a gallon doesn't weigh that much, but you got to get worse gas mileage with the full tank of gas than you do as you get closer to empty. So um, maybe it all equals out towards the end of your trip when you're exhausted and you may have less food on board to weigh you down and, and water, but you're, you're, you're worn out. So yeah, tell me about the, the, uh, the, how heavy the boat is itself and then how long you're going to go. Yeah. So we have, yeah, yeah, we have, uh, we have three people on our boat. So it's Isaac, myself, and uh, Jonathan Harrison. So a third teammate. Um, and we row a Rannick R45, which is a boat that's designed with uh, three rowing positions. So you can actually take, a lot of people take four rowers on that size boat. Um, some people even take as many as five. Um, but there's a, a number of teams who are, you know, a pair or a solo and individual rower, and they, they'll usually have a different size boat. Um, but just, you know, to put it into perspective that people, people do go out there alone and do it as well. Um, we, we only recently weighed our boat. Uh, so we actually don't really know, like, specifically what our what our boat weight is fully loaded or unloaded even um but we estimate probably somewhere between uh probably around a ton and a half um fully loaded so about three thousand pounds um and yeah with it uh with the food i mean i think the food is probably somewhere around i think it's over 500 pounds maybe like 800 pounds even um it's it's definitely a lot of weight uh and we do notice a big difference uh you know when there's no food or you know less food in the boat versus when we have food for uh 60 days for all three of us which is what we have right now Mm. um and in terms of the performance, uh, we can definitely, you know, move the boat faster when there's less weight in it. Um, but it's also a lot about how you distribute the weight, um, especially when you're, when you're in the ocean, because 
there's uh, sort of a game that you play with like trying to get the boat to kind of uh, carry itself down the waves or get the waves to, to sort of push you in a way where you actually surf down the wave, mm. um, which is pretty interesting. So, um, you know, sometimes we try and put a lot of weight in the front of the boat and when the waves get bigger and try and get that, get it to, you know, start surfing down the waves. So um, that helps you go a lot faster, but yeah, it's a, it's a really heavy boat, especially considering uh, when you, when you compare it to like the typical uh, flat water rowing. Um, yeah. I like what? to use the analogy of like, Oh, you just put the, you put the erg, which is like the rowing machine. You just have to put it on the max resistance. And then it's like, you know, sometimes double, double that resistance when you have like the full weight in the boat. So. Yeah. Well, so uh, part of your response makes me laugh because apparently there's no real good way to weigh a boat because uh, my brother, <laughs> if you know, Isaac, you're, you're from more of the you know, Richmond, Lynchburg, Virginia area. You might've heard of the Bateau Festival, the James River Bateau Festival. And that's something that I've been involved with for a lot of years. And my brother has been involved with. So I've built a, a 40, gosh, I think it was 44 feet long. It was, maybe it was 46. This was back in 2011, but it was 46 feet long, about seven feet wide. And they're bateaus. They're old boats that were used back in the 17, late 1700s throughout some of the 1800s to transport goods up and down the James, uh, James River in, in Virginia. And what's funny is there's, there's so much commentary amongst the captain's how much does your boat weigh? Nobody knows. It's always between three and 6,000 pounds. That's just like, and I don't know where people got that. I mean, it's all made out of white oak. So, um, which is a really dense and, and heavy wood, but, uh, you know, it, it, it distills down to about that three or three to 6,000 pound range, which is a significant difference. But, um, so how long of a trip is this that you guys are, are pursuing? Um, so the, the, the duration of the, the ocean row itself, you're asking? Yep. Yeah. So we, um, another thing I think we should add is this is part of a race. There's an annual race from the Canary Islands off the coast of Africa to Antigua, which is part of Antigua and Barbuda in the Caribbean. Uh, this race has been going on for at least six years annually, and then on and off before that for maybe another decade. And every year, a group of ocean rowing boats launches uh, sometime in December to avoid the hurricanes from the Canary Islands and tries to make it to Antigua. It is, it is a race, and we are expecting to race, and it is competitive. Not all of the boats in that fleet are truly racing because some of them are just doing, the, doing it to complete it, which is also fantastic. Um, and so this... Uh, race that we're a part of is uh, organized by Atlantic Campaigns, which is a, an organization that will provide a lot of the safety information and sort of help coordinate everyone to, to do this. Um, of course, it's a lot of work for us to do on our own. You know, we still have to provide the boat, we still have to provide the food, but they give us some helpful tips and some guides on safety training. Hmm. And um, they are usually about 20 to 30 boats. I think, I, I think there's maybe 35 boats, mid thirties. Um, that's the number of boats that launch from the Canary Islands all in December annually. 
And the, the boats spread out pretty quickly because the groups of three and four and five go a little bit faster, especially faster than the solo rowers. So even though you're racing and you're in this sort of fleet, you could be separated by 50 or 100 or 500 miles pretty quickly. Hmm. It's um, amazing, and, um, even on the river, how much of a distance can be, can, can, you can find yourself between different boats. I mean, literally hours of difference. And this is only going between 18 and 21 miles a day in the case that I'm speaking to. And that's just a measure of the different dynamics of the boat, whether they're wider, whether they're heavier, how long they are, but also simply what channel of water they get funneled into. I mean, you can slow down significantly because none of the boats really draw that much. Most of the boats draw about six inches. Um, how, how much are your, which you wouldn't imagine for, that's what makes them so good on the James is it's really rocky and they're relatively flat bottom and you're able to transport a lot of weight without taking on that much, that much draft. How much draft are you guys carrying when you're in the water typically? And how long is the, the boat you're using? Yeah, so our boat's, uh, our boat's about 29 feet long. It's actually 28 and a half, I believe. And our draft is actually relatively shallow. So um, it's uh, pretty much like uh, a pretty rounded bottom, um, but there's a lot of like, uh, I don't know the boat building term for this. Um, I guess I might call it like sweep, like the, the transom really like sweeps up um at the towards the back there just the aft end of the boat um like a camber yeah yeah it really like you know i mean it's not a banana but you know the if this is the bow and the stern kind of like comes up a good amount so um yeah i I don't know what that's called either actually yeah um in terms of our draft i think we're somewhere close to like one and a half feet um with our dagger board we always said it's about it's about a meter uh, maybe maybe three and a half feet four feet or so okay um but that's like just that's with the dagger board and the rudder like if we if we don't account for those um yeah i think it's somewhere around a foot or a foot and a half it's it's really not not that much no that's Um, not bad at all and how long do you expect how long does this this race take yeah, so you mentioned uh, 800, 800 pounds of 500 or 800 pounds of food. So I imagine it's not a day. Yeah, um, it's, it's not a day. Uh, we, a, a really good day would be traveling like 100 miles in a, in a single day. That would be a really, really good day. Um, and the whole oh, race yeah. takes is about 3,000 miles. Um, the, I believe the world record is, 29 days it's somewhere around 29 days um typically i think the average for a team of four is around 45 days um and that's we expect to finish sometime in that range in that 45 day range um we're really hoping for you know somewhere around 40 days we think we could do that but it's also uh heavily weather dependent um as i was mentioning before like you surf down the waves and um, the wind, the windage really impacts your, your boat, um, and helps move you forward. So the, the factors, uh, the weather factors are really play into that. Yeah. So, um, is there any degree of training you guys do to prepare for being confined to interfacing and interacting with each other in isolation for at least 29 days? I mean, 
I'd imagine the team dynamics and cohesion plays a significant influence on morale. And I can tell you just from, I got a few brothers who I love unbelievably and we've lived together. And I can tell you this, we were not designed to live together. Uh, so how do you, how do you prepare for being in a relatively small space for that period of time? Or do you, you do you just kind of hope for the best? Yeah, our, our preparation. So we've been organized as a team. Um, at least I've known Jonathan since February, 2019. So about a, two and a half years and uh, Kramer came on board in late Jan uh, late 2019. So we've been organized, knowing each other, talking about this for about two years, spending time together. Um, and a lot of our training is really just trying to get on the boat, on the water, in the ocean. Um, you know, sometimes logistically, it was just difficult to get to the ocean from Seattle, which is about three hours away from the ocean. Mm. Um, but yeah, I would say the best training, just go out on the ocean for as long as you can, as long as your job allows, and as long as the logistics of it allow. So we did a, a, a number of multi-day rows, three days, four days, um, five days, either on the Puget Sound, which has some good weather, or on the Pacific Ocean. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's no substitute for doing that. You know, yeah. you, could, you could get out in a, a, a smaller flat water boat, or, you know, you can live together, but there's really no substitute for being on a, a 28 foot, 20, 29 foot boat. But honestly, there's, you're too tired to, 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 to fight or something because you're rowing 14 hours a day, 12 hours a day. And you have a very, very common goal, which is just keep making forward progress and keep everybody healthy, keep the boat uh, in good condition. So I would say the team dynamic issues are really more relevant when we're on land and trying to figure something out. And, you know, some people have other obligations to work or girlfriends or, you know, something else that they're thinking about. And once you're on the boat, there's such a shared purpose that it's, I would say the tension is a little bit less. Yeah. Than, well, it makes than, it a little less of a job, right? I mean, that's the, I know a lot of folks who do more of these adventurous type activities, races, surfing, whatever it might be. And, and it's an escape from, from their lives. And I can only imagine, you know, they always warn about, be careful about making what you love your job um, because it becomes a job. The, the thing that maybe I, when I think about the, what you're about to do, that's the most exciting is when I reference those folks, there's, you can't, do the race before the race. The race is the race and training never touches what you'll experience with the race because to get to that point, you've actually got to push yourself in a way that isn't sustainable to do as a part of any training regimen, largely speaking. What, what do you anticipate that you can't experience, you can't recreate in the training that's going to be one of the greatest obstacles or, um, or challenges that you face when it comes down to, to race month, weeks, months. Yeah, I, I think mostly it's just the duration. So like a number of things play into that, but um, the both mentally and physically, we're not able to recreate that, that duration. Um, for me, I think that is the thing that um, I'd be most concerned about not being able to train for, um, you know, or recreate in our training is just that, you know, when you get a physical injury um, of some kind, 
like a skin ailment, like some type of, you know, lesion or it's like open wound or something like that. It's not really going to heal, mm. um, you know, in at all because you're exposed to salt water and you're still moving a lot and, um, you know, using it. And so like something on your hands, for example, um, or your foot, like it's just not going to heal. So, you know, in all of our training rows, it's been, you know, up to, uh, you know, with the better part of a week and we've been able to come home and let that properly heal. But, um, you know, for something like this year, you don't have the, it won't heal. So mm. you just really got to take care of yourself, which we practice, but that's like, you know, one of the things that, that you can't really recreate is, is you don't know what that would do over a month, <laughs> um, you know, where you're not giving it any time to heal, for example. And it's kind of the same thing mentally, you know, um, you know, some things might, enter your mind and you might be, might be bothering you or something like that. Um, I haven't really had this personally, but, um, I can just imagine that something might build up over time, um, and then kind of like explode or, you know, not, hopefully not, hopefully you bring it up before that, um, and talk to your teammates, but those types of things, um, that are time-based that we can't really recreate. Mm. Yeah. And the sheer, so one thing you want to make, you're out on the seas, so you want to make sure you avoid getting scurvy, right? So many, a yeah. lot of, uh, what is that? Is that vitamin C? Yeah, it's vitamin C. Yeah, yeah so yeah. make sure you bring plenty of, of uh, you know, oranges and and maybe some lemons. Um, maybe, maybe that's one thing and that you can't anticipate either is just the sheer volume of nutrition. I mean, you're going to be, you're never going to make up the cal caloric expenditure that, that, in that amount of time. So you're always in this downward kind of towards this deficit. I mean, how much food are you planning on just wolfing and how much attention have you paid to the nutrition? Cause that's one of the things in, in talking to kind of endurance athletes that they've highlighted the most. And what guy I had on recently basically outlined ultra marathoning is an eating competition with a little bit of an eating and drinking competition with a little bit of running in it. And I think that's probably applies to what you guys are doing as well. Yeah, so we have planned, we have already, the, the race starts in uh, two months from now, and we shipped our boat recently. So we've already packed all the food that's going to be in there. I mean, maybe we could take a few more granola bars, but for the most part, all the food is fixed, um, you know, kind of pre-planned menus day by day, actually. So we have, here's, you know, I can hold a bag. This is day 37, and here's exactly what Kramer is going to be eating on day 37, that kind of thing. Um, mm. A lot of it is uh, do-it-yourself backpacking food. So we have oats and couscous and some ramen noodles that will just cold soak uh, with some different flavors. So some like soup mixes and mac and cheese powder and dried fruit that are mixed into that stuff. And we have planned about uh, 7,000 calories a day, um, a little more for myself and Kramer. We're a little bit bigger. So we just base on our body weight um, you know, there's a certain calculation of how many calories you should need if we're going to be rowing for 14 hours a day. Hmm. Um, actually half of over half of our calories are going to come from powder. So either carbohydrate powder, sort of Gatorade type stuff or protein powder. Um, and about the eating and drinking competition, that's absolutely true. Uh, I love to, to eat volume and I just will, I can just give me a, a bag of tasteless goop and I'll drink it all down. And I love that. Um, but it's really, 
<laughs> what I don't like is it takes time. You know, if you're, you get off your rowing shift and you're tired and you think, okay, I have to rest an hour and then I'm going to row for two hours and then I'm going to rest for an hour. Then I'm going to row for another two hours on and on and on. You know, you're just, you just want to go right to sleep. Mm. So for me, I'm just, I just want, what is the, the quickest I can drink this powder or drink down this liquid that has calories in it and then go right to bed. So that's what, for me, and everyone has their own tastes and, and food and flavors, but I just want to drink it down and then go right to bed. And I just, that's, it's a chore yeah. to, to try to, to eat. Well, that's why I think it, they distill it down to, as a competition because anybody can eat a little bit in any one moment, but it's about an aggregate. How does your GI system respond? And just emotionally and mentally, how do you respond to having to force feed yourself in a volume that you're not quite used to? I mean, I think it's smart, really smart to prepackage for the days because there's mental energy that you expend when you're thinking about what do I want to eat? Should I eat this or should I eat that? If I eat this, what do I have to put together to, to, to make that? Are you guys using any, um, you know, camelbacks or anything, or, you know, these, you'll see these vests where you can kind of put a certain electrolyte drink in one, one piece of the vest and water in another piece of the vest and then mix a bunch of caloric, um, you know, powder and with water in another part so that you're not having to take time away from the rowing to press pause and eat. We had looked into, um, the camelback with a, um, with some sort of calories in that or some food in that. We just thought that would get gunked up pretty quickly because there's not really a, a good way to clean those things. Um, Cause we don't have a lot of spare. We don't have like a faucet that we can run with fresh water. We have to make it all ourselves. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. On our, on our boat, we have pockets near all the rowing positions and we usually just stick water bottles or granola bars or some, you know, some little food in the pockets. And they're really convenient to just stop for, I usually, every time I take a break, I count in my head how many strokes I'm taking off. And I try to by the time I get to five strokes off, you know, cause there's somebody else rowing behind me, I can count how many strokes I'm taking off. I usually try to take five strokes off. So, you know, I set my oars, you know, and then grab the water bottle or grab the granola bar, shove it in my mouth and then try to get back on within five or 10 strokes. Huh? That, um, it's amazing what these little simple mental tricks can do to get you a long distance. I mean, I think of folks who will on long runs, they'll just say, I'm going to run for 30 seconds on 30 seconds off. And then to get a few, like a little mental edge and wins, they'll, you know, instead of just running for 30 seconds, they'll run for a minute. And that just makes them feel like they're on offense and that they're in control. What are some of the ways that you guys anticipate? I mean, I think offensive and defensive posturing is really critical in these types of engagements to make yourself not fall victim to the Kind of woe is me. I can't believe my circumstances are this. This is not how it's supposed to go. We weren't supposed to be getting shot sideways in the middle of the ocean and turned around and our equipment wasn't supposed to go down and the food wasn't supposed to get damp and any number of things that are bound to happen. I mean, what are the ways that you guys prepare and then plan on playing games, I guess you could say, to keep yourselves on an, in an offensive posture? Yeah. Um, that's an interesting one. Um, I don't know that we've necessarily gamified it too much. So beyond, you know, just like we want to go as fast as we possibly can. So, uh, you know, we, we like to, we just like to watch our little, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not, not a 
tachometer, I guess, um, sort of mm -hmm. like a GPS based, like this is how fast you're going. And uh, we'll just like toy with, you know, like our stroke rate and like where we're putting our weight and um, like kind of like how much you're putting into the stroke and, um, you know, what maybe change the boat's direction a tiny bit compared to the wave direction. And uh, I don't know, I mean, I think all of us just like to eke out like a, a little bit more speed in the boat somewhere or another. And we typically um, will just set like a, a floor for like how fast we think we could be going when we kind of like start our shift. We'll just be watching that, you know, that speed. And it's just like, well, um, you know, we have a pretty good feel for like how much effort we're putting in. And, and whether or not that's sustainable. So we just pick something, you know, like close to sustainable and then, um, you know, pick a speed we think we can achieve and then just like try and stick on that go like mm. higher, you know, faster than that if we can. And just, it just kind of creates that little uh, competition like with yourself of just like, ah, I can, you know, I can go a little faster than that. Like, but as long as I don't go less than this, like I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about um, how fast I'm going. Okay. So um, there's a measurement yeah. that you use to be able to see, I guess that's, that's gotta be really important. Now, the question is, does each person have a measurement device on them to see who's putting out the output? Because it's not fair, you know, it's not fair if, if, if somebody's carrying the whole load, it reminds me a buddy of mine a few years ago was talking about, you know, it was his night to go out with some friends and I, and I just asked, you know, what do you mean by your night? And so I didn't know this. And some people do this. He and his wife keep specific track of the hours that they do things for themselves. And so it doesn't get out of whack. And I just thought, and that is way too administratively burdensome for me. <laughs> my wife and I just operate and it works for them, but my wife and I just operate under the assumption that even when we feel like one or the other is carrying more of the load, let's just assume that it's equitable, that we're, we're both working diligently with the intent to to carry the same load. Sometimes you do the dishes. Sometimes I do. Sometimes you do the laundry. Sometimes I do. Um, typically I think she loses out because she puts far more thought into a lot of this stuff in general. But um, how do you guys plan on, I'd imagine long into it, you've probably got a sense for who carries, you know, who's strong, right? Who's able to sustain and has a lot of endurance. Um, how do you anticipate trying to navigate brushing off the feeling of, which I, it's just natural. People go, gosh, it feels like I'm carrying most. Are you pulling your weight? I mean, has there been thought put into just shoving those kind of thoughts aside? Personally, I never have those thoughts. It is, it is a heavy boat. <laughs> and so any, any thoughts of, oh, I'm carrying, you don't want to carry that. <laughs> you don't want to carry that weight. Um, so I, I've never had those thoughts of, oh, one person is working harder or one person is contributing to the speed more. Um, yeah, that's just not, that's not going to help me. And honestly, it's, it's just, yeah, that just sounds like a negative place in your space. If you're thinking like I'm putting in more work, or I'm making the boat go faster. Um, another thing I'd say to that is all of us have contributed different things um, on the seat, you know, on the row and off the row, like in terms of logistics of how we get the boat in the water or get the boat or, you know, so people contribute speed in a lot of different ways rather than just power on the oars. Um, and even then it's such a long, a long time on the oars that it's hard to know whether or not, you know, somebody who's smaller, but putting in just more consistent strokes or something is going to have a better effect. Um, you know, on the rowing machines, they have very objective measures of power, but 
over this distance and this time and thinking about durability and thinking about, you know, just all of the other things that we're doing to make the boat go faster in terms of navigation and the boat trim. Uh, I don't think it's, it's really easy to, to measure that. And I certainly don't want to get into that game. No doubt about it. I don't want to plant that seed. I already did. It. That's, <laughs> that's my bad. Um, no, I, I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried about that at all. One, one question that just comes from that is I love when we, we do this week long boat trip every year on the James River Bateau Festival. And the first day, it's always a little clunky. Everybody's trying to find their role and the rhythm they play. You know, are, if there's a leak, who's going to grab the chisel first and go underneath the boat and pack the oakum? And who's going to start the fire in the morning for breakfast? And um, who's going to clear the trash off the boat? And who's going to keep the boat tidy? And who's going to reorganize the poles after half the day when everything's all over the place? And a after a day or two, everybody, it's unspoken, but everybody finds their role. And there's this awesome rhythm of simplicity too it's it's so simple um and you kind of alluded to that too that there's so many different roles what are the almost preordained roles and 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 what do you anticipate if we had to kind of layer what i just said into the experience you guys will have what are the roles that there are to play and and what do you anticipate about the rhythm of that when you get out there yeah, there's a lot of roles, honestly. Um, and I mean, mostly just like tasks and things like, you know, cleaning up and, and um, sort of the chores like that, I think, are things that we all sort of, you know, help contribute to. Um, and I think as a team, we sort of we sort of find uh, find that rhythm with the chores um, and like take turns and um, maybe you know, we each have different strengths of like noticing certain things um, like, oh, like we should, you know, clean that up or oh, we need to like make sure we put that away or, um, you know, things like that. Um, but in terms of like, you know, sort of macro higher level roles, I think the captain's always a big one. Um, so, you know, that one's sort of, uh, you know, determined i guess like before you're before you're on it and um also you know jonathan has just like assumed that role and definitely plays that role as well so that's one thing that's sort of predetermined there's also a lot of uh tasks related or there has been in our rows related to sort of like navigation um and decisions with the boat um and we tend to make those as a team uh but like Jonathan and I will tend to like mull over a lot of the data like associated to those and like what factors we want to consider making those decisions. Um, and then there's also a lot of uh, performance and like health and how do I put this not rhythm um, uh, schedule oriented like sort of like okay what what are we going to do and when and um, how, what are the things that we're going to do like during our rowing shifts and for eating? And I think Isaac naturally sort of, uh, you know, fills a lot of those, um, fills a lot of those responsibilities. So that's sort of how it like shakes out. Um, but yeah, in terms of like the, the tasks, like we sort of just as a team try and like tick things off the list. And uh, we found in about like three days, we really feel like we start to get into that, like, rhythm together where we're starting to like you know cross things off the list on like a regular basis and it's starting to flow really nicely 
what's the longest or go ahead, Isaac, were you going to say something? Sure. I was, um, I was going to say, we maybe should just like list a few of those daily things that we, that we do. Yeah. One yeah. would be, um, we have to make water with our, our water maker, um, which takes water from whatever body of water we're sitting in, you know, can be salt water and then converts it into drinkable water. So we have to, we usually, it takes about two hours to make enough water for the day. Mm. So at some point, somebody has to, to turn that, set the water maker up and put the hose that is the output into our jugs and sort of get that going. Um, like Kramer said, we also have to make some navigation decisions, which I think are being made continuously to react to the weather and to react to where we happen to be in the route. Um, there is some stuff with the food, but we usually try to um, take care of each other's food. So if I know Kramer is going to eat an hour from now, I might fill his, uh, his oatmeal with some water to have it start soaking um, so that an hour from now it'll be sufficiently hydrated. So the food sort of rotates. Um, also, usually somebody will fill up all the water bottles about once every three or four hours. You know, they'll gather up all the water bottles that are on deck and fill them up from our, 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 tub, our tubs of water. Um, I'm, I would love to hop in the water. I'm always the first person, I think, to volunteer to say, oh, I, I always get paranoid that we have seaweed on our rudder. So I'm always like, hey, I want to let me jump in the water and feel around on the rudder to see if we got any seaweed down there. Um, yeah, I know uh, Jonathan really heavy on the navigation. He's always checking our course and, you know, what direction are we headed and what is the weather for the next 12 to 24 hours? How's the weather look? Do we need to make any course corrections for that? Um, and I think Kramer is a handyman. So anytime something is broken, we might say, oh, like, you know, just what do, how do we repair this? How do mm -hmm. we you know, do we repair it now? Do we repair it later? Do we write it off and say, we'll just fix this at the end of the row? Yeah, that's super helpful and to give a little bit of a, a picture. I mean, that's, there's so much energy that goes into pre, not predicting, but it sounds like a lot of the work has to be set in motion far in advance of when you actually need whatever it is that you're, you're, you're working towards. I mean, even, I mean, this is one thing that's kind of interesting to me. So you have to sleep at some point. And I assume you all sleep at the same time. No. Okay. So how do you avoid drift? Like, like you go to bed and you're losing horsepower. Um, how do you anticipate, you know, drift? I assume you can't just aim from point A to point B because you've got currents and weather. And that seems like it could be potentially a good amount of science, a good amount of art as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Definitely some art involved there, um, like, you know, sort of taking the um, data, I guess, like weather data, weather forecasting, and then combining that with uh, what you're experiencing and what you can see and feel with uh, where, where you are in, in the water um, and then trying to react to that. But um, drift, I mean, one thing that we have with our boat is uh, uh, auto steering. So that's a really handy thing to have. And like one thing that our, our battery power is able to help us um, help us with. And so uh, thanks to technology, I mean, we can set like coordinates and the boat will try and figure out how to go to those coordinates. Um, so, I mean, that's, it pretty much does that for us. I mean, there's still drift and like the boat is, might be wrong. Like if it's trying to like point, you know, straight out those coordinates the whole time, 
um, you might drift further south and it might just like keep trying to adjust, even though like you're not, you're never going to make it there potentially. So um, there's a little art to just like trying to figure that part out. Like if that sort of thing's happening, you might just aim, you know, further north if you're getting blown too far south. So um, that's kind of what we do. Um, we just feel, you know, whatever's happening. If we're getting a strong wind to one direction, then we'll just try and adjust based on that. Uh, so in, in preparation for this, what's the longest you guys have gone out together and where did you do that? And, and were the, was that environment reflective of where you'll be or um, is it going to be cooler where you are or warmer where you are versus where you've trained and, and how do you adapt and, and, and account for that? So our, our longest row, just in terms of duration, was five days and 360 miles which was actually part of a race in June. And that was in um, the Puget Sound and the Strait of Juan de Fuca and the Strait of Georgia. So it was uh, ocean light conditions, but um, I would say a little, a little less than that. We also did a 250 mile row uh, off the coast of California from um, Crescent City to Bodega Bay, which is like Northern, Northern California down to maybe 50 miles north of San Francisco. Um, those, that was, we got about 25, 25 miles, 20 miles off the coast. And that was fun just to, we only saw land once during that row. We just got a glimpse of it. And most of the time we were, you know, the whole horizon was either just clouds or, or water. So um, that was similar to the conditions. And also in terms of the waves, we got into some six, eight foot waves, which is close to what we'll experience, but um, we definitely could see bigger waves if we get in some storms or even just stronger weather on the Atlantic. But we're not too concerned about the, the waves and the weather just because we've spent now two years in, we've rode through rain, we've been cold, we've been wet. Um, so yeah, we've seen the, the momentary conditions, but going back to what Kramer was saying about the duration, I don't know how we're going to hold up for, you know, two weeks of, of being covered in, in, you know, rain or something like that. So, yeah, that's part so of the, about, that's part of the fun, right? The, that's part of the adventure. And I would imagine is, is the unknown. And that's what a, a big part of the draw, I would assume is just taking off something whose ending is uncertain and not guaranteed. So is there Absolutely. a way that folks can track, your progress. I mean, you know, you think about folks who do Nat Geo expeditions, they've got like a spot on them that, that folks can click a link and, and tune into. Is there anything along the lines that the general public is able to, to track? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We've got, so actually the race organization that we're talking about Atlantic campaigns, uh, they'll have a, a race tracker similar to spot. I think it's called yellow brick or something like that. Um, and so there's going to be a live tracker on their website. And I think there's an app and stuff like that, that you can sort of see all the teams. Um, so that's, that's pretty much how, how people track. And that's how I've tracked teams in previous years. Okay. So whose idea was this initially? Um, Jonathan. To, yeah. To put the team together, it was Jonathan. Um, he, I visited the, the race start. He saw it on a whim. Uh, he was on vacation over in Europe and he saw, oh, there's this race 
Um, so he, he watched the start of it in 2018, I believe, and then decided to put together a team and reached out to people at work, people through the rowing community and found us. So it's, yeah, it's his idea. Awesome. And what, uh, what do you, I mean, just for the two of you, what's the ultimate goal? I mean, you, you guys have a website, don't you, where you, you outline some of your objectives. And so maybe talk about some of that, but also just personally, what, what your goals are, because it's a team effort, but there's also going to be a lot of individual time in your own head for miles and miles and days and days. Yeah. Um, I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was sort of, uh, you know, getting away from our current lives or like just getting away from sort of the normal distractions that you have um, and getting some time to think and, uh, well, I mean, while something I've learned is that you actually don't have a whole lot of time to like think all that much, um, that is still, that is still like, you know, one of my main goals was to just sort of get out there and be, um, in the ocean and, uh, a part of that environment and really just like feel one with that environment and, uh, get some time to myself to think about things. Um, but one other thing that like, I've really grown to, uh, you know, appreciate is like being able to help other people during this journey and like inspire other people and, uh, you know, really just like any way that we can impact other people um, is really rewarding. So, you know, one thing that we're going to be that we've been trying to do and that we hope that uh, will happen, you know, during our race is just get attention and ideally donations for uh, to clothe school kids here in Seattle. Um, and so that's, uh, we partnered with a, with a public charity that um, helps clothe underrepresented youth uh, school children. So um, those are the two things that I'm, I'm sort of hoping to get out of it. Awesome. And how do, and you guys have a website and it's pacificboys.com Pacific is our website. Um, and so, yeah, we've got all the stuff on there about who we are and, um, you know, different updates about our training and, and things like that. Um, we most regularly post updates to our Instagram, uh, which is at the Pacific boys. Um, but yeah, we also do have an email newsletter that you can sign up for on our website. Um, and one thing I should have mentioned, I don't know if we mentioned this at all, but the, the name of the race is Talisker whiskey Atlantic challenge. And uh, that's where the that's where the race tracker will be and things like that. If people want to follow along or even look at the other teams um, and things like that. So awesome. Thank you. How about you, yeah. Isaac? Um, the yeah, I would I would love to further our goal with the charity. The charity is Assistance League of Seattle. And our goal is to raise um, enough money to clothe one child for every mile of the row. So this campaign is called 3000 for 3000, 3000 miles for 3000 children. And we've had some success, but COVID has really hurt um, the, our ability to do in-person events, which are often really successful, but we've still managed to do limited events um, that were COVID compliant and been able to reach out into the Seattle community and through other contacts and sponsors that we've been um, accumulating as this journey continues. So yeah, it would be great to achieve that goal and to, to have the effects of the row, not just be for the three of us, but not just for our friends and family, but also, um, the community of Seattle. Mm. Um, and then personally, I just, I would love to know the feeling of 
if there is a boat 500 miles ahead of you to, to hunt them down and to track them down, you know, I, I've been in a lot of races, rowing races. Um, and I just love that idea of, you know, there's somebody ahead of you and can you, can you, can you track them down? Can you walk, can you walk them in? And the idea of doing that on the scale of days and, and hundreds of miles is really attractive to me. Yeah, that's unbelievably compelling. Like I, I couldn't think of anything off the top of my head as exciting as the challenge of seeing someone with that much of a wide berth and, and recognizing that potentially you can make up that ground and hunting them down. I know in, in racing, folks call that soul snatching. You know, when you pass somebody and you just feel like, you've just stolen their momentum and they can feel you coming, hunting down, you know, hunting down their, you know, hunting them down. And, and, and man, I'm excited. I hope that on the tracker at some point, I see somebody 500 miles ahead of you <laughs> and I see you guys start to, to stream, you know, towards them. Well, guys, thanks for taking some time this morning and it's December 11th. Is that right? December 12th, December 12th. Okay. Well, you guys launch. Well, good luck, December 12th, and we'll be cheering for you, and, and maybe we'll get together on the back end, and I think that might almost be the most exciting piece is hearing the stories, hearing just the experience you had, the obstacles that were unanticipated that you ran up against, um, but in the meantime, we'll be rooting for you as you wind down on your training um, and as you make the final um, adjustments for, for launch, so Kramer and, and Isaac, Thanks so much for taking the time this morning. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. All right, guys. Well, you've got the uh, website and the uh, Instagram, and we'll post that as well with the, uh, when we publish this and we hope you'll consider uh, uh, helping these guys out in some way, shape or form. Um, even if it's just tuning in to cheer them on. So with that, hope everybody has a great week and we will catch you next time. Take care. Mm -hmm.